Everyone knows about the Vikings, marauders who savaged Europe's western coastlines, burning monasteries and carrying off people in their longboats. But what sort of relationship did the Vikings have with the most powerful empire of the day, the Franks, in the period just before these raids really got going? How did the Franks, in turn, go from being the most powerful conquerors of Europe under the Emperor Charlemagne to a besieged people just a few decades later under the rule of his grandson? Today on Historical Outreach, we're going to be talking with Daniel Milano on Vikings and Franks in the age of Charlemagne and Louis the Pious, roughly the 7th century to the 9th century AD. Uh, Daniel, thanks for being here. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So Daniel just finished his PhD on a topic in medieval history, which is a period a lot farther back than we've talked about so far. I was just thinking about it earlier this morning. If we were taking a trip back in time and we were just walking backwards, go through the World Wars, uh, you know, Civil War, American Civil War, founding of America, we keep going back. We can get back to some pretty far back stuff, the age of Shakespeare, the founding of Protestantism, Copernicus being born, and we're not even halfway as far back as we're going today. Uh, so Daniel, how, how can we sort of contextualize this stuff we're talking about today? I mean, what, what's going on in this period? What does life look like? What does politics look like? What does Europe look like in this period to give us a sort of starting point? Well, I, th I think your point is really good that we can go very far back before we even get to the medieval period. Uh, just for context, medieval, in fact, means the middle period. So basically, we are sandwiched between the Roman Empire, the ancient world, and the modern period. Mm -hmm. uh, and the dates roughly run from about the 5th century, 450, to about 1550. And we usually end medieval with the discovery of America by Columbus, the printing press, um, and several the fall of Constantinople. There's a lot of nice, shiny events. In terms of the period we're talking about today, uh, we're starting roughly in about the year 700, and we're going to about 950, or really more like 850 in my context. Um, and this is a period of pretty major change. Um, if you were going to use the term Dark Ages, which medievalists generally try to avoid, you maybe could apply the term Dark Ages to the period right before I begin. Um, the Roman Empire has fallen. There's been a series of invasions or migrations by barbarians. Uh, there are new kingdoms everywhere. And into this sort of period come the Franks, um, who are located roughly in what we think of as modern-day France. The Carolingians, who are the dynasty we're talking about, the ruling house, uh, come to power in the 8th century they, in fact, seize power from the dynasty before them. And over the course of several decades, they go from controlling an area in roughly what is now Alsace-Lorraine between France and Germany to controlling all of France, controlling uh, western Germany up to the Elbe River. They conquer Italy from the uh, Lombards. They control part of Spain. They are in control of Bavaria. So basically, they control the entire map of Western Europe. And they so, so when you're talking empire. about controlling this area, I mean, how directly are they controlling it? Are we talking sort of this, uh, this idea we have of medieval life where there's these castles structured around and that gives them control of the area, mm -hmm. uh, but it's just really indirect? Or do they actually have sort of control where the emperor is saying, you know, I want this economy or you know, this city to start trading with this city? How much, how much control are we talking about? That's a great question. And it sort of varies on topic to topic and area to area. Essentially, the system is you have a king who 
becomes an emperor in 800 Charlemagne, which literally means Charles the Great, and he's called that in his own life because he does so many wonderful things. A modest man. Uh, yes. Um, Charlemagne is crowned emperor, so you have the emperor sitting on top, and then you have essentially counts um, who rule counties, and counties are basically a weird mix of like what we think of as a county, an administrative unit, um, but also sort of like a medieval county, which is sort of a personal holding. Um, and the counts answer directly to the king. The counts also have a lot of control in their own area because it's a big empire. It takes weeks to get anywhere. Um, and the kings do. They travel a whole lot. Charlemagne gets to Italy, I think, three times in his own lifetime. Um, but they tend to move in sort of circuits. So beyond that, the control is sort of much more vestigial. But every year, all the important people show up uh, for a big meeting, an assembly, essentially. Their new laws are made, uh, and then they're sent back home. Uh, so there's, there's a real attempt at administrative control. Uh, under Charlemagne and under his son, you have uh, officials who are called Misi, which literally means the guys who get sent out. Uh, and they are essentially sent out in teams to different counties to sort of do audits. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we have the Franks, uh, big big players on the scene. Who else, who else are we talking about today? Who else is sort of in this Western European uh, frame set? Other, other nations, if we would even call them that, other kingdoms, mm-hmm. how, how, any sort of broader institutions uh, like the church that are really binding things together? Yeah, so there's a couple of sort of levels we can look at. From a political level, you have the Carolingian Empire, or the Frankish Empire, which, as I said, controls basically most of Western Europe. On its borders, depending on where you look, there are other groups of people. Some of them we would call kingdoms. Others probably don't have that level of organization. So England, for instance, right now is several kingdoms ruled by Anglo-Saxons. Spain is controlled by Muslims. What we're going to be talking about is essentially northern, eastern Europe. And on those borders, there aren't kingdoms. There's a bunch of tribes, basically. Some of them are very well organized. Others are really not. Um, So there's that sort of political level that basically the Carolingians are the big guys in, in Western Europe surrounded by less organized peoples. Mm. Um, Again, it's helpful maybe to think about the Roman Empire, that you have the Roman Empire sitting there with all its glory and all its government institutions, and then you have a bunch of what they call barbarian tribes around it. So that's politics. The church, on the other hand, is theoretically universal, Mm -hmm. and the Carolingian Empire is very Christian. The emperor makes Christian legislation, he is anointed by the Pope. He, in fact, becomes emperor because the Pope crowns him emperor in 800. He has bishops as sort of his main servants. When I, I talked about the Misi a little bit before, and I said there were two officials, one of them is always a church official. Um, those assemblies that I referred to, they don't just make laws about murder. They also make laws about what monks can eat. So it's very religious. They conceive of themselves as a Christian empire. So this is this is the age before there was any sort of Protestantism, or there, there's just the church at this point. Are there are there a lot of major differences within the church, or is it all pretty well controlled and centralized? It's it's becoming centralized. It's 
kind of messy. Mm-hmm. So there's always this question for medievalists about like what the church says is happening because we have to remember the only people writing in this period are in the church. Mm-hmm. That is literally the only source of writing and documents we have are documents written by people who are in the church. Um, so we know what they believe, but we don't always know what's happening on the ground. We don't know what it means to be baptized. We know that everybody in the empire is theoretically supposed to be baptized, but you know, we also know that a lot of them are probably still going around muttering little magical charms mm-hmm. to make their crops grow better. Um, but the Carolin- one of the things that the Carolingian Empire is very interested in, and the Carolingians in particular, is making it a unified church. So everyone should be saying the same thing in mass. Um, priests should wear the same thing. All monks should do the same thing. They're, they're essentially trying to unify it and institutionalize it. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, I said the Carolingian Empire is a Christian empire. Everybody around them to the east and north is pagan. Right, so we're still talking sort of Norse gods, Thor, and, right. and all of that. Uh, and, and I guess I guess the other question: What are what's going on with these people who would become the Vikings? Are they are they sort of these unaffiliated, loose little kingdoms still? Yeah, this is actually, and one of the things that my work looks at is sort of the way that the Carolingian Empire, as the biggest state around, impacts other smaller groups. So this is the period where we first begin to see what we can really call kings in Scandinavia. Up until this point, well, for one thing, we have no names until the Carolingians start giving us names because Scandinavia is pre-literate. They don't they have they have a writing system in runes, but they're barely using it at this point and it's very short. So, it's not something that I really deal with, but essentially you have a bunch of tribes um, led by chieftains who control pretty small areas of land, especially if you compare it to an empire that spans, you know, from the Atlantic co- you know, coast, the English Channel, all the way to the Mediterranean, uh, and all the way from, you know, one from north to south. Uh, these guys are controlling very small areas of land in Scandinavia. They have followers. They're usually located in a hall, so like one big building that is their building with their land. Um, but through sort of an increased contact with the South, they begin to take on new sort of political ideas. Mm -hmm. They begin to see the benefits of being a king, all the sort of power that can come with that. Um, And so we begin to see a growth of centralizing figures, guys who can essentially have more men, more land, can impose power on people who previously might have been their equals. Um, And it's pretty messy at this point, but they're sort of moving towards this. So I I guess, and I guess that gets us to the sort of broader topic. A lot of what we're talking talking about, uh, or are talking about, is uh, the relations between these different groups, between the the Franks and the Vikings, the Franks and the Danes, these various various other uh, surrounding smaller groups. Uh, how does how does uh, diplomacy work at this period? I mean, we're talking about a period a long time before what we think of today with sort of ambassadors and well-established embassies. We're talking about, you're saying, a pre-literate people for the most part. So you're not having these, presumably, these well-established treaties that are written down and everybody sort of abides by, you know, the Geneva Conventions of, of, of that or that sort of thing. I mean, how do, how, do, how do you even discuss topics with your neighbors in this period? It's very slow uh, and it's very personal. 
Um, the Christian documents often give you this sense that there is something like a Geneva Convention. They talk about treaties. They talk about, you know, the swearing of, of oaths and this sort of stuff. But it's often hard to tell sort of how much of that is idealization and how much of that is actually happening, especially, as you say, when half the people involved can't write. But at its most basic, what you have is either envoys, so specific people, diplomats essentially, traveling back and forth between these places, meeting with rulers um, and making decisions for their leaders or giving gifts. So for instance, we have records of envoys coming from Persia with elephant, with an elephant for Charlemagne. So they bring him an elephant from uh, the caliph in, you know, in Persia, in what is modern-day Iran. Um, so that's a pretty you know, massive undertaking. You have to think about how you get an elephant all the way from Iran to France in a period where there are no planes. Is there, is there any ability to know what happens to this sort of elephant? Does he yeah, just... he di- they in fact, they record the year that he dies. Uh, <laughs> and they record his name. Uh, and there's some great stuff on him. You what know? was his name, you know? Uh, oh, I don't remember off the top of my head, unfortunately. Uh, um, but, but so that's a really, that's a very graphic sort of mm-hmm. example of this sort of thing of like how much you can do. Uh, And we have a lot of these records of sort of people traveling back and forth. Charlemagne sends envoys to the Greeks, for instance. Um, And we also, so that's an example in both of those cases of sort of very powerful leaders communicating with each other. Mm -hmm. In the case of people like the Scandinavians uh, or the Slavs, who are sort of another tribal people living in in Eastern Europe at this point, a lot of it is much less formal mm-hmm. and you also will see a lot of cases where the Carolingians clearly know that they are the most powerful people and they actively use that so instead of envoys going back and forth between the two people you will have Slavic or Scandinavian envoys coming to the emperor directly and often even the leaders themselves will come and appear before the emperor mm-hmm. so it's a very different type of diplomacy you can just imagine on the one hand, you have the emperor in his, on his throne, sitting above everyone, wearing rich clothing, and then this other person who is the most powerful person among their people, basically having to present themselves before the emperor. It's not like a state visit where you know the president meets with another president and they shake hands. You know, it's very different. So, how much sort of implied force is there here? What could the emperor just? snap his fingers and bring together a big, competent army by the standards of the day? I mean, how, how, what, how, could we compare sort of the potential military of the Frankish Empire to, to its neighbors? It's way bigger. Mm-hmm. It's way more powerful. It's, I mean, it's huge. It's, essentially, this is an empire that was built on conquest so that when Charlemagne takes the throne, he controls basically, like I said, Alsace-Lorraine, and by the end of his life, he's conquered all of Western Germany. It took a long time. They, one of the interesting things when you read Carolingian documents is that they, it is much more unusual for there not to be an army raised and sent out. That's like a point worth mentioning. This year the emperor did not go on campaign because they go every year. 
that's one of the ways that he imposes control. He brings everybody into his army, and then they go and they basically ravage the countryside, they take hostages, they build castles, and they sort of expand little by little. So they're capable of sort of massive force, especially compared to these little groups of people. The flip side is these little groups of people are capable of being very annoying. Hmm. Um, so they can raise armies much more quickly. They can raid into Frankish territory, you know, burn crops, take silver and gold, uh, you know, carry off slaves or hostages and run away again. And it takes you know, a good deal of time for the Carolingians to then respond in kind and, like, march an army up there. Uh, this is, in fact, one of the big problems that the Carolingians have with the Vikings. Vikings move very quickly. Uh, they come from the sea, so there's no, like, they don't have to march on land, and unless you get lucky, you don't know they're coming. The Carolingians don't have the time to react to this sort of an attack. Uh, so it's a very different military situation. It's a static military situation versus a very sort of dynamic, quick-moving force. So when you think about this period, at least it shows up in sort of pop pop culture or such, uh, you think of these sort of very poor peasants maybe working on a sort of subsistence level, but it seems like there's got to be a decent amount of plenty here if you're able to send an army and live off the land and you're able to gather up enough taxes to support this sort of court and you're able to uh, sort of project this. I mean, how much how much sort of wealth is there out there at, at this point? It's a, that's a really interesting question because there's a lot of wealth, but it's very, I mean, even today, it's very well concentrated in certain people's hands. Um, we do know that there's coinage being used, so it, it's not a barter economy, or if it is a barter economy, there's basically barter and coin usage at the same time. Uh, the coinage is silver, in part because Germany has lots of silver mines and not gold mines. And gold comes from Africa and the Middle East, basically, um, and Asia. So they're on a silver economy. Uh, but they, but so your average peasant is definitely living subsistence. You know, they live off the crops that they grow. Maybe they get lucky and they can sell some. Um, but, you know, it's not super great. On the other hand, your average noble has enough money to, you know, afford military weapons uh, and to go to court every year. We know that there are merchants moving around selling goods. That's one of the main things that I look at when I look at contact between Scandinavia and basically the continent um, is that we see a lot of Frankish goods uh, everything mundane from like pots to swords and like glass beads moving back and forth so that people can clearly buy luxury goods or trade luxury goods for other luxury goods. Um, there's a lot of movement of this sort of stuff. The old idea was essentially it was a very static economy. Everyone was living on their farm. Nobody was trading. Nobody left their home. You know, they're sort of medieval adage is like you live and die in the same place and you never travel more than 20 miles from your home. Uh, now we think that that's true for a lot of people, but that it is not universally true. What, what kind of status do these merchants have? I mean, I've seen examples in history of societies where merchants are really looked down upon as just sort of peddlers and not producing anything and they're to be just despised. And I've seen and there's examples where they're super wealthy and rich and sort of people look up to them as something you might potentially want to be if you had enough fortune or were born into the right guild or whatever else. But what sort of 
what sort of life does a does a merchant have uh, in this period? That's a really, really hard question to answer. <laughs> in part because the thing you said about merchants being sort of despised is certainly true. And what that means for us when we try and find information on the past is that they don't get written about a lot. We have, I think, something like 140 names of merchants from the entire like period that I look at. That's tiny. I mean, that's not a lot of names. Um, you probably have more than 140 names in your email box right now. Um, so we don't know a whole lot about them. We do know that we can infer, based on the fact that we don't know a whole lot about them, that the people who write, i.e. the church and the powerful, the elite, are not interested in them. Uh, when we do see them, they tend to pop up in the context of sort of doing something for powerful people or needing the help of a powerful person or being a problem that the powerful people have to deal with. Mm -hmm. So from the written record, we get very little. We get a lot more from the archaeological record because we can see how many coins are moving. When we find a Frankish coin in Scandinavia, that means someone had to bring it there. Mm -hmm. Whether that was a Scandinavian merchant or a Frankish merchant, somebody carried that back and forth. The same thing with pottery, right? Frankish pottery doesn't have legs. It can't just walk up to Scandinavia. Somebody had to carry it. Um, so merchants typically are not elite, mm -hmm. but they can often work for elite people. So we know, for instance, that the emperor had his own merchants whose job it was to travel around, uh, you know, get new products for him, sell the products that his basically his estates are producing, because the estates are producing food, but they're also producing, say, that pottery that I mentioned. Or one of the really big luxury items we see is glass. Uh, glass, you know, both beads, but also like uh, cups. Uh, Scandinavia doesn't produce a lot of glass. So we find these cups in Scandinavian halls, and we know that Scandinavian lords were essentially saying, look how rich and powerful I am, I can drink wine from France out of a cup from France, rather than, say, mead out of a horn. Mm -hmm. um, so the emperor has his own merchants. There are probably also independent merchants who basically make a living, probably not a huge living, but they make enough so that maybe they can afford some slaves, their own boat. Mm -hmm. um, they can move back and forth. They have connections in lots of places. Uh, but but essentially, they're, they're sort of not in a great position. Right. So... I guess I have sort of two questions from that uh, that are related. The, the main one being sort of how how safe is it for for the merchants, but also just for everyone else? And you know, if 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 you want to send a gift to a foreign peoples, you presumably send some sort of convoy. But how are they likely to get ambushed by brigands, or is that just not something that's really happening? In this area, how safe is it for the merchants? Do they have to have a big retinue? You know, are we finding a lot of swords next to these piles of beads where they had guards that they had to hire? I mean, well, how, how sort of safe or, or dangerous is this world for people as opposed to sort of kingdoms or armies? Mm -hmm. So the answer is sort of it's very safe and it's not safe at all. Um, it gets much less safe as we move forward in time um, so that... We don't find a lot of swords, for instance, next to the piles of beads because swords are luxury items. Uh, we do see legislation that says, you know, you will not harm merchants. Mm. Or 
you know, when an envoy is in my territory, they are sacrosanct. You can't hurt them. They're under my protection. So clearly it's a concern, but it also, you don't see a lot of sort of records of it happening in, say, the 810s, 820s. But as we go forward, we start to see a lot more examples of this. Um, so one of the main documents that I work with is the light of the biography of a missionary saint named Onskar who travels to Scandinavia and he goes from France to Denmark and then from Denmark to Sweden. Um, and he does this by traveling with merchants because merchants are the ones who are traveling throughout the North Sea and Baltic. And his biographer tells the story of his trip to Sweden and basically on his way to Sweden, he's traveling with a bunch of merchants and they're attacked by pirates. And the merchants try to hold them off and they fail. And these Scandinavian pirates basically sink their boats and steal all their goods and Onskar ends up having to walk to Sweden. Basically they escape and then they travel on foot through Sweden to get to the town they're going to. So it's clearly becoming a concern and um, where I end my work, where my project ends, is in the 830s, where the most powerful port in basically all of northern Europe, uh, and it's called Dorstad, and it's about 20 miles from Utrecht in the modern Netherlands, is sacked every year for four years running by Vikings, or by sort of what I typically call proto-Vikings, basically the first guys who are doing Viking stuff. Um, so every year these guys show up, they burn the town, they steal a bunch of stuff, they carry people off. So it is getting progressively less and less safe as we go mm -hmm. into the ninth century. So, so this monk, Onskar, gets attacked by pirates but doesn't get taken uh, sort of prisoner as a slave or such. Is slavery something that's uh, a part of life in this period? Why, any, any thoughts on why he wouldn't have been captured if so? Well, the document basically says that he escaped. Okay. So he gets lucky and he runs off. Um, I think if you asked Onskar or his biographer why he didn't get captured and made into a slave, they would say something like, God protected him. <laughs> um, but you might, and that may be the case, but it may also be the case that he just ran really well. Mm. Um, that's sort of not for me to decide. But slavery is a really central part of life in this period. Um, there are slaves... They're working on the land. They're not... We have to not think of them so much like modern slaves, well, or sort of slaves in America, for instance. They're not working on plantations. Typically, they are owned by a family or by an estate, and they have their own family, and they have their own house often. Uh, and the issue is that they can't leave, and they're not covered by law, and they are not people, basically. They are objects. Uh, but they tend to be a little more independent than we think of. This is not a plantation sort of shackle situation in most cases. Um, that being said, there's a lot of slaves being moved out of Europe. Um, the main slave buying societies in this period are in Spain, Africa, and the Middle East and Persia. So you have a lot of stories of essentially people being captured and then sold off sort of to the Mediterranean. Uh, the Venetians are the biggest slave traders in Europe at this point. But uh, as the Vikings become more and more active, they sort of create their own network of slavery. So they are capturing people and selling them, you know, to, they're basically carrying them back to Scandinavia. Some of them end up staying there. 
Others get carried sort of down through Russia and get sold into, you know, Asia. Um, it's worth noting also that the term slave literally comes from the word Slav, um, because the Slavs are one of the people that you basically take into captivity. Um, slavery tends to happen because of warfare or because of raiding. So again, it's not so much a business from that end of the of the pers- of the situation as much as part of what you do when you march around with an army is you capture people and then you sell them into slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, part of what you do when you're a Viking is you raid a town and you carry off as much silver as you can, but also you grab some likely-looking slaves. Is, is, this, is this a sort of morally connotated thing at this point, or is it just sort of seen as a, a fact of life? I and mean, Does the church have a stance on slavery at this point? It's really weird. The church has a stance on slavery, but it's a very strange stance. Um, the church owns a lot of slaves. But... There are a lot of laws, for instance, that say you should not sell Christian slaves to pagans. So it's not so much that they have a problem with slavery per se as that there are ways you treat your slaves and ways you don't. We have a lot of examples of slaves being freed by saints. Uh, it's It's like one of the things you do if you're a saint. You go and you buy slaves and you free them. But again, that's not... Because you not don't like slavery exactly, it's more because it's a good thing to do. Like it's a, it shows it's like giving money to the Red Cross mm-hmm. or to the Salvation Army. It's an act of charity. That doesn't mean that you want to outlaw slavery. And in fact, if you outlawed slavery, you couldn't do your charity anymore. It's this weird. It's a very strange situation. Um, slavery becomes less common in Western Europe, sort of. In the next couple of centuries, we see a move from slavery to other forms of service, essentially. And in part, that's because the church has a stance on it. But in part, it's also basic economics. So on this, on this sort of uh, religious strictures note, uh, you see some changes as Charlemagne dies. Uh, Louis the Pious, uh, ominous name, takes over uh, his son. How does, how does sort of relations with the external world change for the Franks when, when Louis takes over? How much is religion a part of his diplomacy as opposed to Charlemagne's, and how much is it just a part of sort of diplomacy and interactions among peoples in general at this time? It's a little bit of both. One of the big changes that occurs at the end of Charlemagne's life, right before he dies, but then becomes much more of an issue for Louis, is that the Carolingian Empire stops expanding. Uh, So Charlemagne basically spends, you know, most of his life expanding the empire. He's the one responsible for conquering Italy, part of Spain. He conquers the Saxons. Basically, he's the reason why the Franks now are neighbors with the Danes, uh, because he pushes the border back. Louis inherits an empire that basically is not supposed to expand anymore. It's reached its natural limits. It's got some really nice, convenient rivers bordering it. Um, And Charlemagne sort of makes it explicit in his will that he doesn't want the empire to expand. And both Charlemagne and Louis then are sort of stuck figuring out a new system because expansion is really great for the Franks. It brings in a lot of money. It, you know, imposes your power on people next to you in a really clear way. Um, And Louis has to figure out how to run an empire that is not expanding. Mm -hmm. So religion was always a part of foreign diplomacy, if you want to use the term diplomacy, Charlemagne conquers the Saxons and really, really brutally 
suppresses paganism. He, you know, people are forced to baptize at the point of the sword, basically. It's a big deal. It, you know, it's a real issue to the point where some of his main churchmen sort of say, well, maybe this isn't the best way to convert everybody because they don't seem really happy when they're made Christian forcibly. Louis is not conquering, so he doesn't have that option, but he's still very interested in spreading uh, the word of God. It's, a, it's, in fact, a biblical stricture. You know, Jesus says, you know, spread my word to the ends of the earth. Um, and so these Christian emperors take that very seriously. So part of what Louis wants is to spread God's word to the end of the earth. Part of what Louis also wants is to have safe borders. And it is much easier to have safe borders with someone you have alliances with and who you have things in common with. So he uses the spread of Christianity as a way to essentially uh, transform foreign people into familiar people. You might liken it to sort of spreading Coke and jeans to the world mm -hmm. during the Cold War, right? America wants to make people more like them, um, so they export their main sort of cultural commodities. In this case, Christianity is one of the Carolingians' main cultural commodities. So we have, uh, maybe, maybe as a specific example here, we have the Danes, this Danish kingdom uh, right on the border. It's kind of, kind of a funny case because they don't seem to follow exactly the same ideas of monarchy that we think of today where the sun takes over and the next after that. Uh, but we have this, this case where the emperor of the Franks comes in and baptizes the Danish king and his son baptizes the son of the Danish king and his wife baptizes the wife of the Danish king. And what, what's going on here? What's sort of the symbolism? Why, why with all this sort of pomp and what's it mean for the people in uh, you know, proto-Denmark? So I think a little bit of background. You mentioned that sort of kingship doesn't work the way we think about it in Denmark. Partly this is because they haven't really had kings before. So they're just figuring it out. And what we actually see is that we have two groups, two families essentially, and they're actually related. Basically, you think about it like if your cousins were fighting with your other cousins um, for control over grandma's house. Um, that's sort of what it's like. Uh, so you have these two sort of lines of the same family fighting to be kings. And Another very confusing thing, you can have multiple kings. And we don't quite know how that works. So Denmark ha could have, you know, three kings, and we're not clear if they each have their own sort of mini kingdom, but the Franks don't care. Um, or if they all rule together and, like, they meet every couple of weeks or months and sort of go over agendas. Or if one of the kings is sort of in charge, but he's sort of graciously let his brothers also be king. Uh, it's kind of, it's very confusing, and as I said, they're not writing anything down. Everything we get is from the Franks. But Louis essentially, in his effort to secure his borders and make his empire safe, decides that he wants to back one of those groups against the other. Um, and this results in some pretty messy diplomatic and also military engagements. What he ends up doing is baptizing one of these kings in an effort to essentially give him legitimacy and give him more support. And so, like you said, he baptizes the king, his wife baptizes the king's wife, and so on and so forth. The idea is essentially that they are becoming their spiritual parents. Um, 
if you, you know, if you are Christian and you've been baptized, you have a godparent. Nowadays, that doesn't necessarily mean all that much. In the medieval period, it essentially meant that that person is now responsible for not just your spiritual welfare, but also for sort of looking out for you. They become an extra set of parents. Mm. So Louis is essentially, on the one hand, saying, I will look out for this guy. I will support him both as a Christian and as a king. But he's also saying, I am clearly in charge of this person, right? They're both kings. Louis is the bigger king. Um, yeah, it's... So, so how much uh, is this changing the lives of those in... I mean, when, when the king is then baptized, does that cause the people to then get new waves of missionaries? Are they being sort of forced to be baptized in new ways? Or, or is this changing the life for everyone at the same time? No, very much not. Uh, especially because, ironically, within a year of Louis basically saying, this is my picked candidate, that guy gets exiled and loses his battle. And Louis has basically spent a lot of time and effort on nothing. Um, so the Scandinavians don't, in fact, get Christianized for another, like, a couple hundred years. It takes a lot longer for them to be Christianized. Part of this is because that guy gets exiled. Part of it is because the Carolingians basically lose steam. And within the next 40 years, they basically have, the empire has fallen apart. Part of it also is because it's pretty clear that the Danes don't know what's going on. Um, we have this great story um, by a Carolingian biographer, by a Frankish biographer, um, and he basically has this anecdote about these Vikings who show up every year to get baptized because baptism means you get presents. Um, and then one year, the emperor has so many of these Vikings there that he doesn't have enough presents for everyone. And some of the Vikings complain and are like, wait a minute, I've been getting great presents every year. And the joke is essentially that you're not supposed to get baptized every year. You get baptized once. The origins of trick-or-treating. Yeah, it is, it's kind <laughs> of like that. Um, so they don't have the same idea of what's going on. And it takes a lot more time and effort for that sort of thing to really go f to trickle down essentially you have kings who get baptized but they have to really know what that means and then they have to impose it on their people so we're running low on time so i want to sort of skip from there to uh, the other side of this trick-or-treating the the uh the trick part i guess uh, what's causing these vikings to become a threat to the franks uh sort of briefly why are these raids increasing why are we moving towards uh, the sort of idea of vikings that we have today yeah, so this is a very hotly debated topic. There are a lot of reasons, and the most simple answer is essentially there are a lot of reasons. But I'll go through some of them. Um, one of and one of the big reasons is increased contact with what is essentially the wealthiest empire in Europe. As they become more familiar with how much money there is down there, they want it, um, and it turns out that they can get it pretty easily. I mentioned earlier on the sort of difference in defense and attack. The Vikings can move very quickly. Another reason why there is this up, sort of upsurge in Viking activity, uh, one theory is that this is the period of time where they figure out how to build those sort of iconic boats that everybody associates with them. Boats that move very fast, boats that can go to new places, can go up rivers, can, you know, 
basically take them across places they couldn't go before. In combination with this, as I said, they're more familiar with how rich the South is. Um, and there's also a political change going on so that um, kings want followers. The way that you get followers is you show how good a king you are by giving gifts. How you get those gifts is, well, maybe you trade for them, but it turns out that another really convenient way and the sort of the most convenient way to get gifts, i.e. gold, silver, jewelry, um, is to go out and take it. So as kings start to realize what being a king can mean, i.e. I get to control more land, I get to be richer, I get to be more powerful, they start to seek ways to increase that power. Um, so they fund raids, they, they send guys out, um, you know, and they say, this is a great way to make myself more powerful, is to go and raid in the south. And I can move much faster than them, and they can't catch me. Um, and at the same time, as these kings are consolidating their power, becoming more and more powerful, you have people who are losing. Uh, so, you know, like I said, you have these two branches of the family. One of them gets kicked out. Well, what do they do? They don't just settle on a farm and sort of live the rest of their life. They try to get power back. So they start raiding and they start stealing gold and silver. Um, and this all corresponds with the Carolingian Empire going through some really intense political upheaval. So they're, they're vulnerable. So it's a lot of factors coming in. Um, it's, it's very complicated. Okay, so we just have a couple minutes left. I, I want to take all of this together. And, and so we have a pretty pretty uh, detailed story that you're able to tell. Uh, and, and obviously a lot of other scholars have looked at this material in various ways too, but it's not actually uh, quite so easy as, as some history if we're going to be uh, a little simplifying there and that you don't have a lot of written sources you can base on. And you sort of mentioned this before, but how do you even do history at a time when there's so few sources? I mean, what sort of materials are you looking at to piece together this story? Uh, and, and, and how do you sort of put together a coherent idea of what happened so long ago? It's hard. You combine a lot of stuff. Um, you're essentially doing a lot of detective work, piecing out little references. Um, so I use a lot of written sources of a lot of different varieties. I use poetry. I use historical records. Um, a lot of them are sort of year-by-year -year accounts. This happened in this year. Written by and, whom? Uh, written by monks, by churchmen. Uh, sometimes they're officially uh, sort of patronized, so they're, they are asked to create something. Other times they're trying to get in favor. Sometimes they're just doing this because they're interested in writing. Um, so we have histories. We have sort of chronicles or accounts of every year. Uh, we have poetry. We have law documents. You know, when a document says... Charlemagne, you know, orders the creation of a navy on the coast to protect it from Viking raiders, you can get a pretty good idea that something has changed if he's never ordered that before. Mm. We also use physical documents, ar archaeology essentially, uh, and numismatics, which is a fancy term for studying coins. Um, so, as I said earlier, if we can find a lot of Frankish coins in Scandinavia that tells us about sort of the movement of money and people. Um, when we find Scandinavian goods in, you know, a grave in Francia, that tells us again that people are moving, that there's changes happening. So we put, and then we put that all together. We sort of, you know, we, we create 
narratives based on a lot of different small pieces of data to build a bigger picture. Um, how, how much sort of certainty is there at the end? Are we are we sort of telling what happened? Are we telling what we sort of think happened? And what, how, how how certain can you be? It depends on the topic. We can be certain that sometime around the mid eighth century, the Franks become aware that there are Danes up there because we have literally no references to Northmen, guys who live in the north, until the 760s, right? That tells us something. The fact that those references just increase more and more and more and more as you go along so that in the 8th century, maybe you have three references, and in the 9th century, you have references every year. Again, that tells us very definitely that these people are becoming more and more of an issue. Archaeology is great in that way also because, you know, if you see a lot more stuff, you know that more stuff is moving. But there's a lot of details we don't have. Uh, we, you know, archaeology can't tell us who was moving it, who owned it, why they wanted it. So we have to infer we have to create sort of theories. Uh, so it's a balancing act. We know a lot of things concretely, but then we sort of go from there and sort of try and create the most convincing narratives based on the evidence we have. All right, that's all the time we have. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me.